Well, I'm in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 16 this morning. And uh, as you, I saw this on the internet this last week, a few days ago, and I found it interesting. A teacher came into her class and wrote the following on the board, and she did 9 times 1 all the way to 9 times 10, and the first equation was 9 times 1 equals 7, 9 times 2 is 18, and, and on and on. The rest are accurate. And uh, when she wrote that on the board, all the kids were laughing and snickering because she got the first equation wrong. And she said, why are you laughing? And nine times one is not seven. Mrs. Hope, uh, it's, it's nine. And she said, well, I did that actually on purpose because I wanted to see how you would respond, she said. Actually, I got nine out of ten right up here. But what one did you focus on? You focused on the one that I got wrong. And I wanted to let you know that that's how people will treat you when you mess up sometimes. They'll focus on your mistake and the thing you did wrong rather than all the things you did right. Criticism. We tend to be pretty critical people in our human nature, especially when people disagree with us or when they mess up. We live in a very polarized world, country, city, politically, very politically, um, religiously. We live in a polarized world morally um, in so many different ways. Well, it's nothing new because Paul was writing to polarized peoples all the time in his letters. And he was writing to the church in Rome. Uh, The Roman citizens were very critical of the minority group who was in their cities, namely the Jews. It was primarily Gentiles living in Rome, and the Romans saw themselves as superior in every way over the Jews because the Jews they saw as weak, as backwards, as poor, as, as they're just judgmental. You know, they want to, my way or the highway, and so they, didn't, they don't have open minds. And, and so the Jewish Christians claimed also to follow a Messiah who happened to be Jewish, who was poor, who was homeless, who came from a backwards place like Nazareth, and who was actually crucified as a common criminal, the lowest form of punishment that anyone can subject themselves to, and humiliation. How could we follow a person like this? Well, if the God you proclaim is real, then why don't you have him prove himself to us? the Gentiles would say. Well, this made the Jews angry, as they were always. They, they felt that they were superior to the Gentiles because uh, the Jews had despised the Romans and uh, because they were immoral, they were idolatrous, they were responsible for the desecration of God's holy temple in Jerusalem and the holy city. And when a self-respecting Jew would even say the word Gentile, they'd go, spit on the ground to cleanse their mouth. Furthermore, the Roman emperor Claudius kicked the Jews out of Rome because Jews were too confusing and they were creating too much trouble in Rome. So he kicked them out. And so for two years, uh, the, the Jews had to leave Rome until Claudius died and then some were able to return. And when these Jews returned to Rome... They found something that surprised them. What did they find? 
They found that many of the Gentiles had responded to the gospel. The gospel that was given to the Jews. Now, the churches were filled with Gentiles. So this was kind of disturbing to the Jews. So Paul was writing this letter to the church in Rome made up of both Jews and Gentiles now. How are you going to treat one another? Both groups filled with pride and arrogance and superiority in their minds. Um, well, Paul, as Jesus did, he would preach um, grace to the humble. Those who are broken, he preached the message of God's love. But to those who are filled with pride and arrogance, self-sufficiency, he preached the law. He preached God's holiness, the commands. And so Paul began his letter by reminding the Jews and Gentiles that they both stood guilty before a holy God. So quit your accusations and your criticisms toward each other. Humble yourselves, for goodness sake. He began by first addressing the majority group in Rome, the Gentile group. And he said to the, these Gentiles, hey, uh, you may feel like you're superior in every way. Well, you know what? You stand guilty before God. You've been rejecting God. They might have been thinking, you know, we weren't raised to know this one true God. We serve other gods. So how can you expect us to whatever? And so Paul says, hey, there are two witnesses that stand against you if you're in a court of law. These two witnesses that would forevermore um, uh, allow you not to make excuse. So the first was creation, a look without, and then the second was your consciences, a look within. Every person has been given the truth in part. Creation. It's God's general revelation rather than the specific revelation of Jesus. God communicates through general revelation. How many saw the moon last night or this morning? The full moon. Was it not beautiful? I took a picture of it and it looked like a street lamp, so I can't project it for you on my phone, but um, it was just outstandingly beautiful. The heavens declare the glory of God. Creation stands as a witness against you, Gentiles. In verse 18 of chapter 1, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. If you've ever visited South Dakota and gone to Mount Rushmore, you'd stand there and look up at this 600-foot sculpted uh, structure of the four presidential faces. You wouldn't stand there and say, wow, that is quite an accident. There must have been quite an earthquake in the recent past to form such a wonderful structure as this. Perfectly form busts of heads. Or, or maybe, maybe, I think maybe erosion took place. And the way the water ran, it just carved out the rocks and there we see before us a wonderful act of creation, not God's creation, but somebody would have to admit this was created by an artist, an intelligent designer worked at this. 
Or if you were to look at your watch, if you're wearing an Apple watch or something, you wouldn't be thinking, you know, some big explosion took place. And as a result, you know, these pieces of metal and springs and, and these wheels, they came together and they formed this thing that can now, now tell perfectly good time, accurate time. It, quite an amazing thing happened. Or you wouldn't say, hey, in this bag I, I put things such as, uh, uh, you know, pl- plastic and metal. And so... I'm going to shake this for a while, for the rest of the sermon. Is that all right? Well, wait, wait, wait. And then you open it up after an hour or maybe 50 years, and you pull out a cell phone, a cell phone. Look what came together. Because I sh- It's ridiculous. We know that this cell phone that can download the Internet was created by an intelligent designer, not by accident. Well, in the same way, Paul said, You know what? God has created this earth and it reflects an intelligent designer because what you see in the universe and the heavens is far more complicated and intricate than a cell phone, a watch, or even Mount Rushmore. Or if you put away your telescope and get out your microscope and you look kind of at your cells and the chromosomes that make up who we are, the intricacy and the beauty of who we are of the development of a human, We're not going to conclude that we are here just by accident, by a big explosion. Rather, we have been put together by an intelligent designer. Creation um, gives evidence that there is a God. Secondly, conscience, a look within. In uh, chapter 2, verse 14, uh, Apostle Paul continues to speak of the Gentiles when when he writes, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law, I'm going to substitute the word Bible here for law, um, because the law was God's Old Testament scripture, um, the Bible. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the Bible do by nature things required by the Bible, they are a Bible for themselves, even though they do not have the Bible. They show that the requirements of the Bible are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, at other times even defending them, this will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets. Conscience bears witness that there is a God. Con meaning with and science meaning knowledge. In other words, with full knowledge, we can act according to our conscience. We can disobey our conscience, or we can obey our conscience. Sometimes it'll accuse us. Sometimes it will um, defend us. Conscience. We have a conscience. God speaks to us through our consciences. When I was a kid, I distinctly remember lying to my parents on three separate occasions throughout my childhood years, and I remember them vividly. It's amazing what sticks with you. Um, But I knew in my heart on one particular occasion that my conscience, was, had, had, my conscience was convicting me because of the lie that I had told, and I could not continue in this lie any longer. And I'll spare you the details of what I lied about, but I remember one night at dinner time around the table, I just burst out in tears because I couldn't contain the guilt that I felt against my conscience for lying. God gave us a conscience. Despite the evidence of creation 
and our consciences, how did the majority of the Romans respond to God? We're told in chapter 1 again, verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. In other words, the more they disobeyed their conscience, the more they denied God's creation, the deeper they sank into darkness of sin, the harder their hearts became toward God. And then as a result in verse 18, we're told the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against the godlessness and wickedness of people. Paul's telling the good news. Why is he focusing on wrath here? And what did this wrath look like? Did it look like thunderbolts and lightning? Very, very frightening me? Galileo, no, he, it didn't look like that at all. Instead, in, in the context of this letter, Paul said, this is what God's wrath looks like. He gives us over to our sinful ways. Look at verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity and degrading their bodies. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, worshiped and served created things rather than their creator. Verse 26. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another, committed shameful acts with other men, received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Verse 28, again, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind. Verse 32, not only did they continue to do these things in disobedience to their conscience, to God, to his creation, but they approved of everyone who practiced them. In other words, there was no repentance whatsoever. Rather, uh, they continued in their ways and even celebrated those things. Sounds like our culture. Well, God's wrath looks a lot like God giving them over to what they desired and what they pursued. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Problem of Pain, he said this, the lost will forever face their horrible freedom that they have demanded. The lost will forever face their horrible freedom that they've demanded. God doesn't send anyone to hell. People choose it. That's what they have said all of their lives. I don't want you in my life, God. I don't want your ways. I don't want your word. And so God gives them what they desire, ultimately. He turns them over. Those who consistently reject God, his word, his promptings, his convictions, his invitations into relationship will eventually experience the removal of God's hand of grace that is protecting them from their own sin that would destroy them. God said, if this is what you desire, your will be done. Now, can't you just hear the religious Jews reading this first part of Paul's letter saying, amen, amen, Paul, preach it to those Gentiles. They deserve every bit of what they're hearing. They deserve your wrath. Preach it. I mean, they deserve God's wrath. Preach it. Don't hold back. Tell it like it is. Yeah. 
We can all, all have the same attitude when we think of others who are walking in darkness, doing disobedient, perverted things. Or maybe even people from other nations who don't come from Christian nations, you know, and, and they're, they're, they serve Allah, whatever. And, and so we can get really critical toward people like this. Well, the Jews were like these two women who were sitting in the front row one, one day when a preacher was preaching. And, and these two women were up, they were fanning themselves and they were standing up and they were celebrating as the pastor just unleashed, um, uh, preached hellfire and brimstone in the congregation. Like, like repent of your... Uh, your um, Uh, your drunkenness, repent of your gambling. Uh, And he spoke out against things like like that, you know. Repent of your adultery, your lying, your, your theft. Yes, preach it, pastor. Praise the Lord. Amen. But then the pastor turned the corner and he said, repent of your gossip. Gossip, do not talk about people behind their backs, to which these two women suddenly sat down and they remained quiet the remainder of the sermon. And after the service, the pastor went up to the women and said, what happened? What did I say? Don't you like my preaching? Oh, oh yes, pastor, we like your preaching, but you stopped preaching and you started meddling. <laughs> Paul shifted his conversation now in chapter two to focus on the Jews who would have said, hey, uh, Paul, you done stopped preaching and now you're starting to meddle because he accused the Jews now. Fourteen times in the first five verses, Paul points out that you, you Jews, you chosen ones, are not innocent either. Chapter 2, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? You Jews are every bit as guilty as the Gentiles. You have no excuses either. How are they guilty? Well, for one, they sat in the seat of judgment that belonged to God alone. God says, or Billy Graham says, hey, it's God's job to judge. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict, and it's our job to love. God and his spirit can do a good job at judging and convicting. And, And I got thinking about my life. Have I ever stood in judgment over someone today? Have I ever spoken a negative word about someone or had a thought just ruminated on a negative thought about someone? Verse 3, so when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you'll escape God's judgment? Reminds me of an old comic strip called Wizard of Id. You remember that? Um, Rodney was a warrior, and he came in off of battle. He was bruised and beaten, and his horse was crippled. And he goes to the king, and the king said, Where have you been, Sir Rodney? He said, Well, king, I've been out doing war. I've been fighting your enemies in the west. I've pillaged, and I've burned, and I've killed all of your enemies in the west. And the king replied, But I don't have any enemies in the west. 
To which Rodney replied, you do now. Matthew 7, Jesus said it this way, Do not judge or you will be judged in a like manner. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Jews, you are guilty of judging others. Have you ever extended grace to yourself? And at the same time, you've withheld grace from others. Like when I was, when I drive sometimes around town and I'm in a hurry, I get behind, I inevitably turn a corner and I get behind someone I have to follow who's going below the speed limit. I'm thinking, you do not deserve to have a licensed person in front of me, you know? And I get so irritated, but then on my day off, I'm leisurely driving around, looking around, and I have someone tailgating me and they're beeping. I'm thinking, what are you doing, man? You're so impatient. What's wrong with you? You should take take your license away from that guy, you know? Or, or like the other day when I was at a four-way stop and, and I was going to turn left and someone was going to turn right opposite me and, and so we were kind of jockeying who's going to go and then they turned right without a turning signal. I went, idiot! And then I realized, oops, my turning signal's not on either. And so I turned it on. He goes on to verse 4, And do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience? Which in the commentary indicated that kindness spoke of the past kindnesses. Forbearance means the the present way that God ministers to us and his patience for us in the future. Not realizing that it's God's kindness that is intended to lead us to repentance. In other words, you think that when you and when we continue in our sin and we don't reap negative consequences, do, you, do we feel like, uh, you know, God overlooks sin like that. He doesn't mind. God's okay with my choices. No, Paul is saying God is simply offering you mercy, what you don't deserve. He's withholding his judgment for a future time. He's given you opportunity to repent so that, that you don't have to experience that. But what if we continue in our unrepentant sin against our conscience? What will happen? In verse 5, we're told what will happen. God will store up his wrath against us for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God said, God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. He said to the Jewish religious Jews, you know, you stand every bit as guilty as the Gentiles, those pagan Gentiles. And they might have been thinking, wait a minute, I can understand why, okay, okay, I admit Sometimes I have a judgmental attitude toward people. Forgive me, God. But you cannot begin to tell me that I'm like those pagan Gentiles. I do not engage in the same sinful activities that they do. I do not participate in orgies and perversion and temple prostitution with young males. You cannot tell me that I'm like those Gentiles. Furthermore, I'm a chosen person of God. We are chosen people. We've been circumcised and set apart. We've been baptized, confirmed. We're members of our church. We are students of God's word, the law. We, are, we come from God-fearing lineage of, of 
ancestors. We follow God's will. We are teachers of the lost to the children. We are lights to this world. We are chosen. We're not like Gentiles. Well, Paul responds, you may not sin in the same way that the Gentiles do, but don't forget that your sin separates you from God every bit as much. Have you ever struggled with any of the following? In verse 29, going back to the original list in chapter 1, um, including in here is envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slander, arrogant, boasting, disobedience to parents, uh, withholding love and mercy. Have you struggled with any of those? Or how about the list in chapter 2 that he cited? Uh, Theft, adultery, idolatry, hypocrisy, inconsistent witness. You might be thinking, well, at least I haven't committed adultery. Well, Jesus said if you've lusted in your heart towards someone, then you've committed adultery in your heart. At least I'm not like those murderers in prison. Well, If you've had hate in your heart, Jesus said, then you've committed murder in your heart. Um, But I I have never bowed to an idol, God. I don't have one of those wooden figures in my house that I burn candles to. Paul wrote in Colossians that if you struggle with greed, that's idolatry. Lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. He said, greed is idolatry. Have we ever been greedy in the use of our time or our resources to serve ourselves? Well, then that is a form of idolatry. That's placing something before God and his will in importance. Furthermore, James 2 says, whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of the law. If I had a glass of juice here and dropped one little dropper of poison arsenic in here and drank it, then it would kill me. Just one little drop. Yeah, just one little sin is enough to separate us from God for eternity if it's left um, unresolved. Furthermore, there are sins of commission, things we commit against God that we're guilty of, the things we do that we shouldn't do. But then there are the sins of omission, the things we ought to do that we don't do. That's sin, James says. If anyone knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. For example, have you ever withheld forgiveness from someone? Have you ever withheld agape, unconditional love from someone who doesn't deserve it? Have you ever withheld words of encouragement or or praise and thanksgiving to God? Have you ever withheld sacrificial service when it costs us something? Have we ever withheld sharing the good news with someone or praying for someone when we should have? Have we always loved God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Or have we fallen short there or loved our neighbor as ourselves? Have we always given sacrificially to all who ask? Not just what they ask, but hey, if they ask for that, you give them even more than that. Have we done that? If not, we're guilty of the sin of omission. The sins of the flesh, C.S. Lewis said, are bad, but they are the least bad of all sins. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasure of putting other people in the wrong, of bossing and patronizing and backbiting. 
the pleasures of power, of hatred, pride and arrogance, for there are two things inside me competing with the human self, which I must try to become. They are the animal self and the diabolical self. The diabolical self is the worst of the two. That's why a cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. But of course, it is better to be neither. C.S. Lewis. He's saying in the story of the prodigal son, you know, we focus on the, the son who is sinful and greedy and, and ungracious, and he takes his father and goes out and squanders it all, all, all the inheritance from his father. We think we can't be like that prodigal son. But Jesus told the story to highlight the older brother as he was telling it to the religious Pharisees. The religious older brother said, I've done nothing wrong. He was filled with envy and jealousy and bitterness and unforgiveness for his younger brother. The one was the sin of the flesh. C.S. Lewis says the older brother had the greater sin, the sin of the spirit. So none of us church people are without excuse. I should say we don't have an excuse. I should say we can't use excuses because we all stand guilty before God. So why does Paul start out with this good news of focusing on God's wrath and on our shortcoming? He starts out because this way because unless we understand how depraved and fallen and guilty we are, then we won't appreciate our need for God's grace, his love and forgiveness. We'll go around in our self-righteousness, self-sufficiency, thinking, hey, I'm a moral guy. I'm good. God's got to love me. I'm like the religious Jew in Paul's day. Or as the saying goes, unless we've trembled on death row, we will not dance at our pardon. If, if someone's swimming and it looks like they're drowning, and if you dive in to rescue them, you grab them and you yank them around and turn them and start dragging them into shore, and if they weren't drowning, they would think they were getting mugged in the water. They'd say, what are you doing? Get off of me. Stranger. Stranger danger. You know, they, but if they truly know that they're drowning, then they will appreciate you going and rescuing them. We're all drowning in our sin. That's why we worship a Savior. I'm preaching in the choir here today. We need a Savior. And that is the message of grace that is in chapter 3, which will begin next week. When we realize we're in a heap of trouble, we won't reach out to God. But there's good news. God is waiting for us to reach out to him at all times. Let's pray. So, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the reminder that we do fall short apart from you, apart from your grace and your mercy and your love. But we thank you, Lord, that we do know the rest of the truth, Lord. You have revealed it to us, that you came to rescue us from our depravity and our rebellion and our disobedience. You came to die on the cross uh, and pay the penalty for our sin, that we might receive your righteousness and forgiveness. 
and be restored into relationship. That, that is the gospel, your death and resurrection that leads us into relationship with you. And so, Lord, as messengers of this good news, we pray, Lord, that you will fill our hearts with thanksgiving, fill our hearts to overflowing so that we will share this message with others who don't understand it, Lord. And may we just conclude this service by worshiping you as we focus on your mercy and your grace. In Christ's name, amen.